0: Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I'm glad to have you back. Today, we are going to be talking about chuckers. Yes, chuckers. The hateful gray birds that live in the Great Basin of the United States. They are an interesting non-native species that was brought to this country many years ago, and they have naturalized in many of the harshest environments of our western part of the United States. Today I am talking to Travis Warren of the Up Chucker Podcast. He is one of the best chucker hunters I know. And we are going to talk about everything from tips on finding the birds to hunting to gear to shot sizes to dogs and everything in between. Without further ado, here's Travis. Welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast, Travis. I am super happy to finally get you on the show. We've been going round and round quite a bit, and uh, you were too busy out there trucker hunting, and I was too busy out there chasing other random upland birds, so we didn't actually get a chance to hunt with each other this past season, but we're certain to fix that next season. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks. It's interesting being on the opposite side of the microphone, as they would say. I'm usually the host, so being the guest is is very unique, but uh, pretty cool. So thanks for having me on.
0: So that begs the question, Travis, you are the mind and the madness behind the UpChucker podcast, correct?
1: Yeah, that is that is my uh, creation. So it's a bit of a passion project that I have, and it's almost coming on about two years now. And really, it, it, it was interesting in how everything started. I haven't really shared much of my backstory, but... Um, for me, I literally had knee surgery back in 2000, so it be 2018, March, and I was bored out of my mind sitting at home for two weeks while my knee healed up enough to go back to work, and, and so I just got to writing. I just started writing stories. My father-in-law started, he would write stories when we would go on fishing trips or hunting trips, and he would handwrite them and he would write multiple pages and he would send them to my grandmother and she would have them posted or or published in the Crater Lake newspaper where she lived and i would always read his stories and i always just thought they were hilarious and they were just uh they they were just so natural and you could really picture yourself being there and i thought well i wonder if i could write a story and i sat down and i and i started writing a story and that was titled uh My hunting partners are like my wife's hairdresser and it really just kind of all it just kind of all snowballed from there. I talked to a buddy and he said, you know, what people are really into. I said, what's that? He said, "Podcasts." I said, my God, what is that? And he was explaining it to me. And I said, I said, well, yeah, I know who Joe Rogan is and I know who, you know, the big guys are. But uh, I said, man, when I have any technical issues at home, like with the Wi-Fi, I have to ask my wife to help me so like creating a podcast was such a such a intimidating endeavor but really when you when you get down to it uh you know if a guy like me can start a podcast i guess it gives hope for anybody
0: yeah i mean i this is the second season of hunt gather talk in the first season i was in the exact same kind of situation where you know i've run this website for 13 years and so i know the back end of that sort of thing but audio and video are which is such a such a stretch for me but it's actually is i mean once you get the hang of i use audacity Mm. once you get the hang of of your editing software so that you have your sound is as good as it can be and and all of that kind of jazz it's really not terribly difficult to get started doing this and to really get something as i mean this season is pretty niche from my perspective in that we're only dealing with upland animals Upchucker. It's even nichier <laughs> niche because yeah. you're dealing with the hateful gray birds. <laughs> well, and I think that's the key.
1: So if you're going to do anything right, you got to find the gap. And I guess my interest was always very narrowed in the first place. And when I started writing, my writings centered around my dogs and then my all my backcountry like elk hunting and deer hunting that I was doing. And I still do as well if I draw a tag. And so for me... It was just a natural. It was a natural progression into talking about Chucker in a formal setting, and I, you know, for and obviously you talk about stuff you know. I mean, you don't want to go out and try and record stuff or talk about stuff that you just really have no. Concept of. And so it's just stuff that's in my wheelhouse. It's stuff that I'm really passionate about. So it all comes naturally and it all comes really easily. And it's funny when you start doing stuff like this, how many people you become exposed to that share the same mindset as you. And being at a niche market, chucker hunting specifically, um, I think a lot of people were really excited to finally have something, especially chucker hunters, have something that's theirs. Because if you look at a lot of the other podcasts across the board, as great as they are, nobody was really speaking about the things that they really are passionate about. And and chucker hunting is such a, it's a very niche, like we've already said, but it's it's it is filled with a bunch of hardcore, uh, passionate individuals.
0: And it's a uh, mental and, illness. Let's. <laughs> 100 percent of mental illness it very much is
1: it very much is i mean you know thank god i have a wife who's very understanding and for five and a half months of the year she could carry less if i'm at home uh on the weekends so, but now that the season's over all my honeydews are really stacking up so it's it's uh it's one of those things but yeah you know so you're based hunting...
0: you're based in uh in reno yeah so are you from nevada or are, have you lived in other places
1: yeah, that's a long story in and of itself. I think we only have an hour, but I'll, I'll start. I'll try to make it as, uh, as quick as possible. So I was born in Los Angeles and I moved around quite a bit uh, on the West Coast, Northern California, and then into Washington. And in about 97, uh, I, my mom uh, and I and my brothers and sister, we moved to England and I grew up and I spent my last years of high school and college in England. And then in 2001, I moved back to the States, actually en route to New Zealand. I had no interest in in staying in the States. I was on my way. I was on my way uh, to New Zealand with a two-year work visa. And I stopped into Reno to actually visit family, believe it or not. And as the story goes, I met my wife and I never left. And so I was going to say the
0: only thing that could keep you in Reno for more than like the time it takes to get in and out of Reno is would be something like important like that. (laughs) (laughs) Because yeah. Reno, man, like there's Reno 911 is a documentary.
1: <laughs> well, I think that Reno gets a bad rap and I'll tell you that I spent. Sell me I on spent, Reno. Go. Oh, it's, it's not really hard to sell you on Reno. I've li- like I said, I've lived in a lot of places. I've, I've visited places like Oslo, Norway. I've lived in the South of France. My folks lived in the, in, and just outside of Toulouse for some, for some years in the area. And so I've seen a lot of the world. Yeah, it's for me. One of the most special things about living here is just the free access to anything you want to do so if you think about it and this is not a plug for more people to move to reno but this is one of the things that i love the most and that is that you can live in reno and it doesn't takes you three and a half hours to get to san francisco it takes you eight hours to get to la it takes you eight hours to get to vegas you can get to salt lake in eight hours i mean you're really centralized in, in some major arteries to get you wherever you want to go and then the whole state's 87% 87% public land. So you can go anywhere for the most part and enjoy what has been put aside for us and nobody, you don't have to ask for permission. And that was one of the things when I started really uh, settling here and started seeing those opportunities. And now, especially being so, so addicted to chucker hunting, it's even more reason for me to love Reno and Reno's really vibrant. I mean, Reno obviously is always going to have a gambling so it's going to have a gambling uh, side to it. But I think that we have this outdoor adventure place that really people people are starting to notice. You know, we have That's a fair 45 point. Forty five minutes to a closest uh, ski resort, which is, you know, all the ski resorts in Tahoe are forty five minutes to an hour away. You got Pyramid Lake. You got Pyramid Lake, which has world class LaHontan cutthroat and literally Pyramid Lake is 30 minutes from my house. So, I this is how
0: I know Reno really is because when, whenever I go to up to fish in Pyramid Lake, Crosby's is always booked. So, <laughs> the only place I can actually stay is somewhere in Reno. And guess where you're going to stay if you stay in Reno? it's By far, the cheapest is some casino. And I'm I, full disclosure, I hate casinos. And <laughs> I, I don't care what kind of casino it is, I hate them all. It's just not for me. It's just my, not my deal. So, I the saddest casino experience i think i have ever seen now granted i've never been to one of like the little rural ones but i was at uh a famous i think it was john escuaga's nugget and mm-hmm. i was watching everybody because I was trying to find a decent thing to eat and so i was just walking through the casino to get to my truck to to go out to eat because i was not going to eat the casino Ooh, it was just it was not it was a kind of a grim sight of like people on like respirators pulling the one arm bandit and it just was it gave me a shudder, and so I, you're right. You're absolutely right that Reno is a lot more than just a just a casino, and and, and I should I should remember that. <laughs>
1: well, and I also it's a good point that you bring that up because I think a lot of individuals who travel through or visit or just have a you know a concept of what Reno is, they just think it's desert and casinos, and that's all they think. And we have this conversation regularly with people who come into town to hunt that. It's not until you really get outside of Reno and you start doing things like chucker hunting or big game hunting or fishing that you really start to see the true magnificence of what Nevada is. And it's a shame that not everybody gets to see that, but it's also kind of nice that not everybody sees that because we're, we're not have to dealing with too much overcrowding. But, you know, that really is the true magnificence of the state is there are these it, it really is full of life. But you have to go look for it and you have to be in the element. And there's this respect for the animals that survive and thrive in the Nevada country because you have to be tough and you have oh, to yeah. be hardy. And I, and I think that that just lends to the same character of people who who hunt Chucker.
0: Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you are about to find your new favorite tee. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their new Upland collection of t-shirts for all you pheasant, quail, grouse, and other Upland hunters. Also be sure to check out the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook Collection. I've got several t-shirts that I designed in conjunction with the folks at Hunt2Eat, including a fantastic shirt with the logo. Be sure to use promo code Hank10 for 10% off your order when you order online. Again, that is Hunt to Hunt2Eat, and I am happy to have them as a sponsor for the podcast. Thanks. Did you start hunting chucker when you moved to Nevada?
1: No, so funny story. Well, not funny story. Everything's a story for me. So when I met my wife, my wife grew up in a family where her dad raised chucker and Pheasant, and she would have to go – during the day, she'd have to go collect chucker eggs and they would eat them like we do chicken eggs. And so she would eat them for breakfast. She'd eat them with whatever they were cooking. And then if they wanted it, she'd have to go out in the back with a pellet gun and she'd have to shoot a chucker for dinner. So that's what my wife grew up doing. And my father in law really kind of sparked the interest. But it was my buddy Scott when we moved uh, out of town, we moved a little ways out of town and we literally moved to the base of a chucker hill. Hmm. And he asked me, "You want to go chucker hunting?" And I had no idea what the heck a chucker was. Uh, so I trusted him. And my father-in-law had actually just gone to one of those uh, charity banquets and won a shotgun, won a, a Remington eight seventy pump. And I said, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to go to do this chucker hunting thing. Uh, you got a shotgun I can borrow?" And he's so he gave me my first shotgun. And uh, that was, and I still have it actually. I use that for snowcock hunting now, but. Um, I went out and I I believe I saw some chucker. My buddy claimed they were, I was just shooting and nothing was injured that day, nothing was hurt that day. We'd educated them, but we didn't shoot anything. And then it was, it was kind of a build off of that. It was, it was really exciting. Um, and he and I started hunting occasionally that was kind of the beginning of it. Um, and actually we're still friends this day and we, he's going to come on my podcast and talk about my first chucker experience. But, um, I didn't start yet, so it took me a few years to actually get into chucker hunting, but once I did, it was definitely something that's always been a part of my life.
0: You kind of alluded to it a minute ago uh, with your wife's origins, so we should start by talking about the elephant in the room, and that is, there's going to be enormous number of people who are listening to this podcast who are like, oh yeah, I'm a chucker hunter, I, I shoot chuckers all the time, but they live in like Ohio, or... Sure wisconsin or virginia or or the valley of california so there's this weird bifurcation of chuckers in that yeah they're if you go on like chicken raising sites you can buy chucker chicks say that mm-hmm. four times fast yeah and they're apparently extraordinarily easy to raise as a as a meat bird much like uh, a Korten- uh cordonix quail or yeah, or other yeah, guinea hen or something like that and so there's this domesticated slice to them. In fact, one day – I live in, in, in uh, near Folsom, California, and mm-hmm. there, yeah. one day there was a chucker walking down my little cul-de-sac. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Because the, there's no game bird farm or anything. Somebody must have kept a chuckers, and one just got out and was wandering around. So that leads to the the, yeah, the, the, the pet and shoot conundrum mm. so they're a very common preserved bird and i have to say you may have a different opinion but i think they are the most pathetic sad unhappy you feel terrible about yourself preserved bird there is like there is no greater difference between the chuckers we're talking about and a preserved chucker like like a, a wild pheasant and a, and a pen raised pheasant is not as different Same as a chucker is versus a wild chucker. Like, like it's just sad. They just they they you up and they hide in plain sight. They're like, please don't kill me. And it's just it's depressing. And this is how most of America hunts this bird. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we find them in the Great Basin, because while yes, the the chucker, the wild chucker, lives in eleven states, because people always forget about Hawaii. uh, They are primarily a great basin bird which is which is where Nevada is so let me ask you have you ever have you ever gotten to one of those pet and shoots and, and chased the the basically tame checkers?
1: yeah I, and actually it's a great op, it's a great conversation it's not a I haven't gone to a game farm or I haven't gone to a, a planted bird um, a club or anything like that but we use a pen raised checker for training for some field trial stuff uh, and we use it for our youth hunts as part of the Chucker Chasers Foundation, two, year, two times a year, we hold youth hunts. And so we supply all the birds for the kids to shoot. So I will tell you that a, a pen raised chucker is about as flaccid as they come if you're relating it to a wild bird. And some people might throw their arms up, but I'm gonna tell you right now that there's no, there is no substitute for a wild bird. There's no substitute for a wild chucker. And they are some of the toughest birds to hunt and you really have to go out and hunt them wild to have a real, true respect for the bird. And I do think that, you know, in those circumstances, you're yes, you're shooting a chucker, uh, but you're not really shooting a bird that's really, I think, well, that really it's a, it's merely a shadow of itself.
0: It really and I, and is. They, I mean, and I that's think that's it's the unfortunate the, thing. I think it's the most sha- Like I think it's the bird that has lost the most from rays to uh, i mean even maybe maybe a, maybe a turkey you could argue like a like a big white butterball versus a you know a, a an eastern wild turkey might be a similar distance between what most people are used to and what you get in the wild but chucker is just it's profound
1: and i guess it just depends on what it is you're trying to achieve so if you're just using chucker to train your dog uh, to work on behaviors to work on you know, holding, things like that, it's, you know, they're absolutely very, very beneficial, especially with that unique scent that every bird has. So you want to get that, that chucker imprint, you know, scent imprinted on your dog. But I will say that there's just no substitute for hunting wild birds. And I had a friend come out from Minnesota this year and hunt with me. And, you know, it's, uh, it's very sobering. It's very sobering to come out and hunt Chucker and, and truly, wild terrain in the great basin it's great basins unforgiving Mm -hmm. and it's and it's tough and it's hardy and the people who chase chucker men or women are tough hardy people and there's a a sense of pride i think associated with being able to go out there and have a successful hunt whether it be having birds in the bag or just making it to the truck at the end of the day you know when when you can exist where chucker exists in the wild Uh, It's something that you really chalk up to, you know, personal accountability of keeping yourself healthy enough to do that, as well as mentally tough being able to do that. And I'm not trying to oversell the idea. It's tough stuff. And I think that's why a lot of people I think that's why it's such a big deal here in Nevada. And I think it's that's why it's such a big deal in other states like Oregon and in eastern Idaho and places like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the the, the two sayings about chuckers. The one is that you hunt them first for novelty, and every time after that is for revenge. And then the second thing that I mean, I don't know if a lot of people say this, but I sure as hell say it is that there are no fat chucker hunters.
1: No. Like well, you will No, no you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Um, y- you know, I, I I I jokingly say every year I get chucker thighs because I do. And I just have to buy bigger pants because my thighs just don't fit in my regular year jeans. And, and you do, you just, it, you burn so many calories through the day. And I mean, I don't know one person who goes and hunts chucker that doesn't sweat buckets, regardless of if it's freezing or hot. I mean, you're, you're, you have to go find them. They're not going to make it easy. And then when you find them, they're sure as heck not going to make it easy, especially late season birds.
0: Well, they're also, you know, I mean, there's a reason I call them hateful gray birds, is because I don't know that there's another game bird that lets itself be known more that doesn't get shot. So <laughs> there's lots of birds that are elusive. Yeah, there are lots of birds that are like flat out hard to kill in the sense that they're just they're either tough or like the snowcock. You just got to get to where there are. Right. You know, we did a whole episode on Snowcock. And but
1: Chuckers. Yeah, actually yeah, you I know, met the guy I met the guy that you actually interviewed. I met him at the Mount oh, this Jim. Year. Yeah, he was hunting with my buddy Garhart Stevenson.
0: Okay. So 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 the thing about Chuckers is like I mean they're called Chuckers because of what they say. And like you can hear this all over the place. And sometimes you can see the damn birds at hundred yards or hundred and fifty right. yards all freaking day and you could chase these guys and like shut up and (laughs) and you can't get a shot at them so it's super frustrating i mean it's like i've gone whole days not finding a grouse in the sierra nevada or whatever whatever but at least you know they're not yelling at you
1: yeah um Yeah, actually <laughs> it's probably the most frustrating thing and I apologize actually I didn't talk to your buddy from Kansas. I talked to another guy. That oh, was okay. on a different different podcast. My apologies. But um yeah, and it's it's absolutely hilarious. So when we had some friends here from Minnesota like I said, we I took them to a new spot and we literally were surrounded by chucker and you you they would you would see him running on the ridge or you'd see them hop up on a rock. And you're trying to get your dogs to go in that direction and, and they can see you and they're busting, jumping, and you're not even gonna, you're not getting close. There's no, no point in even pulling a trigger. And they are the, they are the most frustrating things. And nothing is worse than walking back to the truck and they are just laughing at you (laughs) from the mountain behind you. And you just came from there. You just walk that mount, that you just walk that ridge, you just walk that side of the mountain, and you're like, I was just there, and you get down to the flats and you are back to your truck, and they're just, you just, you turn around, and you're like, how are they back there and how are they laughing at me? Because I, I and, and I think that that's the, that's just the best part about it sometimes, it's just they just, they're just laughing at you and just saying, yeah, good luck next time, buddy.
0: I mean, ducks are ducks are the same way in a lot of ways. Like there's a, all kinds of times where. I think you became a good chucker hunter. The same reason I became a good duck hunter is that I live pretty much in the valley of Northern California when ducks are what you do. And if you live in Nevada and you're an upland hunter, chuckers are what you do. So, you know, we get this intimacy with the bird that you really are, you really get the opportunity to really get to know this animal, uh, as a, on a deep level in a sense that. you don't get unless you hunt something a lot because it's just you you see them all the time. And then you you see them out of season too where you can kind of figure out what they're doing and other times of the year. And it's just – it's funny because especially in Nevada, the different bands of the Paiutes will identify themselves by a particular animal that's extremely important to them. So around where you live, the the Paiutes identify with the Cuiwe, which is a suckerfish that lives in yep. – uh, in the yeah, area weirdly yeah, that they play. don't identify with a Lahontan trout but uh apparently that the suckerfish was a lot easier to gather in numbers back in the day when before it was endangered and then there's another group of Paiutes that identify with a jackrabbit and there is one that gr- identifies with a with a, the trout so i mean you get these whole societies that are linking themselves to a particular animal that is very very important to them and and it's i think in the modern day the closest you get to that are the whitetail hunter or the chucker hunter or the the quail hunter and it's almost become a a a talisman that you eat.
1: (laughs) Well, not only that, but it's passed down into generations. Now, obviously, I I sort of uh, came into it like by proxy a little bit, and you know I've married into the tradition of chucker hunting. But you know I've had an opportunity to meet so many people who still hunt with their grandfather and their dad and themselves, and they still go chucker hunting even this season. And that's, that's just amazing. That right there shows the importance that is passed down. And it, I mean, really that, that, that is what identifies, that's how their family identifies is we are chucker hunters. Yeah. And, and that stretches to so many States within, you know, like I said, you know, Eastern Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Eastern Washington, uh, parts of California and Nevada, and obviously there's you know places that you in Canada, Utah, yeah, Utah and Canada, and uh, where you know basically the, where that Great Basin stretches, and it and it's such a part of people's life through the generations that it, it's really an amazing thing. And and even I get to take my daughter, my ten year old daughter now, she's been on a couple of chucker hunts with me from you know walking in knee high snow. To, you know, super hot days. And it's it's a lot of fun to be able to, to introduce the passion because you're not just introducing the concept of hunting. You're introducing the concept of really revering uh, a species and nature and, and the country. And what it does is it passes down the importance of preserving these things. Because if it if the value isn't seen through the generations, the value is not going to be retained. And so that's really one of the most wonderful things. Just like tribes, you know, the things of importance are passed down through those generations so that they are retained and maintained. And that's kind of the same thing with chucker or elk hunting or whatever it is that your family is really big into. You're passing down the importance of conservation and preservation for the, for the generations to come.
0: As you've heard me talk about before, I have been a longtime Filson fan and customer well before this podcast or even Hunt, Gather, Cook began in 2007. One of the things I've always loved about Filson is their commitment to continue to make best-in-class gear for any condition, from hunting and fishing gear to rainwear and even things to wear to your job. With spring fast approaching, Filson has a variety of new lightweight, waterproof, and packable options. Dry bags, new shirting, rain shells, and new ripstop nylon bags that will keep everything tight, dry, and well-packed. Filson was founded in Seattle, Washington in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. There's a reason that their slogan is, you might as well have the best. So do you know the history of chuckers in North America? Uh,
1: you know, uh, enough to sound marginally educated.
0: All right, you 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 start, and I'll fill in the blanks.
1: <laughs> well, so chucker were introduced into the U.S. in about 1893, and the first introduction came in Illinois. Um, obviously not exactly a true replication of the country that they were taken from, and really it took the understanding of of getting them into areas that are very similar to uh, the Himalaya, India, places like that where they're where they exist normally before they started to actually take hold and thrive. And during that kind of time frame like the 19, 1893 through up into you know even the 1950s and 60s, there was this huge uh, push for implementing and introducing a lot of wild game birds into the US. And the greatest thing about chucker is that chucker have filled a gap and they're not competitive with any other species. It so, is an interesting
0: thing that they are. That's it, the only time that they in, that they even hang out with anybody else is sometimes mountain quail and sometimes California quail. And you, they really are. There is no Great Basin high high country grouse. The the low country grouse is the sage hen. Yeah. And and it's just really interesting. I mean, there there's four or five different kinds of. I mean, depending on if you're a lump or a splitter. Of, of Chucker or Electoris, you know. Yeah. So Electoris is the is the genus. Mm-hmm. And so if you're uh, a European listening to this, this is the red-legged partridge of Spain, or it is the, the the a very similar red-legged partridge from Pakistan or the Caucasus or Turkey. Most of our birds here in North America are from that eastern area. So the the first ones were brought from India, but it really wasn't India. It's what it's what is now Pakistan, but. Because they were brought before India was was uh, independent of uh, of England, and they were and and before Pakistan was split off. So the ancient human history of this bird is super fascinating. So anybody who's ever hunted them, even in a preserve, knows that they covey up real tight. So the human history of hunting small animals like this only dates back no more really that we know of until humans were able to build nets and nets is a fairly they're they're fairly recent things so yes people would throw rocks or sticks or whatever at you know pick off the odd chucker 65 75000 years ago but you you really have to get into like the 20000 years ago time this is still long before civilization for nets to show up and there's evidence of ancient nets where this is in in asia minor and you really where civilization started a a practice of catching multiple truckers this is also why this bird is easily domesticated is because this is a very common game bird where civilization actually began so the human history of us with this particular bird goes back as long as we've been doing agriculture and it's a fascinating thing that it has taken hold only really in this country in the hardiest, nastiest place like the Great Basin, as we've said, is not for the faint of heart I mean you have to if you want to be a good chucker hunter you you have to be fit and we can we should actually talk a bit about um about how you how what you would do to train for a good chucker hunt if you're not from chucker country in a bit but this bird, you can find recipes for it written in cuneiform. It's been really, part- yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, they just call it the they, the, the, you know, co- they just call the partridge, but, but yeah, it's and all of its all of its native names, no matter where you find it in in the old world, has something to do with the way it sounds. So it's oh like really. We, we call it yeah. chucker because we, we think we our ears say it goes chuk 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 chuk, but there's a like an other parts mm-hmm. like the kick 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 kick, and then there's you know, every different language calls it something like that, except for you know Spain and, and France, but they they came at it much later with the with the the red legged partridge. But this is also a partridge that you can buy in the store. Um, yeah, not necessarily I'm your sure. not necessarily your supermarket, but have <laughs> seen
1: canned versions,
0: right? Canned, canned, canned partridge is <laughs> kind of odd. Canned checker, uh, a concept. But like D'Artagnan sells them online, and because. You can either get them pen raised, much like a guinea hen, or in the case of D'Artagnan, you can get wild hunted partridges in Great Britain that are uh, imported to this country. So there is a way to to get your hands on a chucker for the dinner table if you're if you're not if you're not in chucker country.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, it's I actually ran across uh, an advertisement for it, and I just. Uh, you know, I was pissing myself laughing because I mean, people will joke a lot of the times that say that. I mean, if you're looking at uh, calories per dollar, you're most certainly going to be a poor person. And you know, if if you just want to eat chucker, you just go out and buy a can of chucker. But it's such a, I mean, you talk about uh, really just erasing the mystique of the bird. I mean, buying a can chucker is probably the best way of going if that's what you're trying to do. But I know. yeah, it's it's interesting.
0: It's a super calorie negative hunt. Like it's it's <laughs> among the most calorie negative hunts you can do. Yes.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously that and Himalayan snowcock hunting, but um, yeah. I mean, chucker hunting is, and it, it really nutrition and nutrition and just choosing what it is that you want to fuel your body with while you're on the hunt. And, and this actually leads into a really interesting story. If you don't, if you, if you don't mind, cause I actually okay. wanted to start off with this and it was actually a thank you to you and, um, your previous guest. Um, you know, let me, um, so the story basically is, uh, is that I was out on a closing weekend And I had planned to initially camp overnight and sort of uh, partway through the day, I found out that grandma was going to pick the girls up from school. So I was basically free. And so I decided last minute that I wasn't going to. I was actually going to come home and and just hang with my wife. So I call her on my way out and I said, honey, honey, I'm not going to stay the night out here. I'm actually just going to come home. I'll be home around six thirty. And I drove, so I drove out and I only had about four hours to hunt, but I had found a new spot that I wanted to sort of pursue from a different direction because I had messed up the hunt when I stumbled across them the weekend before. So I, I went out and I parked my truck and it was about 78 miles from my house is, is where I went. And I didn't have phone reception and I knew I didn't have phone reception, but when I went out there, we got into the birds and they were really low and they were actually super cooperative for the last weekend of the year historically birds late in the year don't hold very well they're always pretty spooky but they were holding really well and we we did really well we ended up with three birds in the bag and it was about 5 20 when i started heading back to my truck i got back to my truck and and there was a glint of sun still on the horizon Uh, and i went to start my truck up and it wouldn't turn over and i that feeling of oh shit this isn't good And then I look up at the mountain, I think, well, should I climb back up or should I just stay with my truck and see what see if it'll start? And I knew that if I back up climbing
0: climbing back back up to get get cell service
1: to to see if I could get cell service Mm. because it was a new area and I wasn't paying attention to my phone. I actually didn't know if I had cell reception up there. So it was it was a crapshoot, even that concept. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to, you know, that in a safety, in a survival, quote unquote, survival situation, leaving your vehicle is one of the more dangerous things to do, because if you get lost, generally search and rescue will find your vehicle or somebody looking for you will find a vehicle way before they'll find you.
0: And then there's chupacabras.
1: Yeah, there's always chupacabras. There's all kinds of strange things out there. (laughs) So I decided I'll just stay with my truck. And I gave it an hour and the truck wasn't turning over, wasn't turning over. And now the sun's down. And if you're... One of the things about being in the desert is that it gets hot during the day, but it will get cold as hell during the night. Mm-hmm. And I had left and it was a T-shirt kind of day. It was a really interesting end of the end of the year season, but it was a T-shirt kind of day. So I brought a T-shirt. I brought an insulating, uh, really just a grid, like a grid fleece layer and a, and a rain shell. And Luckily, I had actually gone. I had had to take my daughter to a doctor's appointment, so we stopped at Sprouts and picked up some food for her because she wanted it for lunch. And I had bought a bunch of stuff, which I don't normally do. I usually, I'm that I'm that guy who just eats protein bars all day long. And I had brought a bunch of food, and I had a flat of water in the back of my truck. And I ended up having to sleep out there. My truck actually didn't wouldn't start. The fuel pump went on my truck, Mm. and it's that moment when you realize it's, it's cold now. And I don't have I'm in my truck, thankfully, and but I do and I do have a survival blanket and I always prepared for a survival situation. But I'm not prepared. I wasn't prepared for comfort. That's for damn sure. So I had to crawl in the back of my truck with my dogs, huddled my dogs underneath the survival blanket with me. And we just roughed the night out. And one of the things that I did to sort of pass the time because it wasn't a matter. I knew I wasn't going to die or anything. It was just boring as hell. Because as a chucker hunter, I probably have really bad a case of ADD, anyways, and so just sitting at one spot for twelve hours until the sun came back up was just was mind numbing. So I actually had downloaded your podcast, and I had turned your podcast on, and I had and I, had, I listened to it to its completion, and I I thought you know I got to tell Hank that thanks for. Thanks for making the podcast because I had something to listen to and I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast and I, you know, it really helped pass the time and I got about four hours of sleep and I woke up the next morning at about 645 because it's always that last hour before the sun comes up. That's just colder than sin.
0: Oh yeah. As a duck hunter, we know this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know that. You guys are nuts in your own way. And, and anyways, I got, I couldn't sleep anymore because it was so cold. I ended up having to walk out about two miles to the road and I walked out two miles to the road and I met a, I met a, a couple of old boys, and they'd been hunting Chucker for 50 years. And wow. it was just two brothers, and they were unloading their side-by-side. Side. And I said, hey, guys, do you have cell phone reception? They said, no. I said, uh, I said yeah, my truck broke down. I had to sleep in my truck. And the look on one of the guys' face, when he said, was your wife expecting you home? I said, yeah, last night. And he just kind of was – it was really con- it was con- really concerned, and I said, you know, it's okay, guys. I don't want to interrupt your chucker hunt. It's not an emergency. It's just really an inconvenience. It's almost going to be 67 degrees outside today, so I'm not going to die of, of freezing to death, and I had plenty of water. I said, there's a ranch house down the road. I'll go walk to that, and they, they said, okay, well, I tell you what. If you don't get rescued by 1 o'clock, we'll be back here at the truck, and we'll give you a ride in the town. I said, that's perfect. I'll let you know. So, anyways, I would go to the ranch house, and nobody was there. So I had to walk down the road, and a couple of chuck hunters picked me up. A couple of real nice guys with a beautiful Gordon Setter, and they drove me about twenty miles down the road to where reception was. And, uh, and uh, long story short, after that, a truck came out and and all that. But the biggest point of that being is that I was I was I brought enough food, and I knew what food I needed to survive in a survival situation. And I just the real I, question
0: was, is this. Did you have enough tequila?
1: No. You see, that's funny. I don't bring alcohol out with me, not because I don't agree with it, but because I hunt so hard during the day that if I have a beer, I'll fall asleep. <laughs> I, I, I will be no good. And usually they're like an hour to two to three hour drive home. And, and I just it's not worth it for me. I, I just I, I won't have you. the motivation to you. make it I'm home.
0: I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I, although I can absolutely feel your uh, feel your pain on that one, because when I, I, I fished commercially in Alaska, and you work as long as there's daylight. And, you know, in the summertime in Alaska, there's quite a bit of daylight. And it's to the point where when you're done with that day on the boat, you know, you crack open a single Rainier. And then by the end of the Rainier, you're like, oh, I just, I need to get my three or four hours of sleep before we get up and do it again.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's it's. Uh... It's, I, I just, I know myself well enough that it's just not worth it. I just don't have the motive. I'm the guy who, if the moment I drink a beer, I have lost motivation to complete any further chores at the house. So
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I know myself well enough, but I just there's, wanted to actually say thanks for, the, thanks for the podcast.
0: You're most welcome. I'm happy to, uh, to have been able to help through your hours of need. <laughs> right. It is a really good point though. And that a great deal of upland hunting, especially, is quasi-domestic in the sense that you you hunt farms a lot or you hunt reasonably close to home. And I think of all of the upland hunting that we do, you know, obviously with the exception of outliers like the snowcock. Um, I think chucker hunting. I'm trying to think. I would say chucker hunting is probably the most backcountry. Of all of the upland huntings, you know, like, I, you know, cause even, even on my mountain quail spots, they're, you know, they're never really that far from a road or from somebody and certainly not pheasants, certainly not, you know, I mean, I can't think of a quail and I've hunted them all that takes you into a place where, you know, <laughs> you're 78 miles from nowhere, yeah. but you know, that's just the nature of the Great Basin. The Great Basin is a very sparsely populated, cold desert area.
1: Yeah, and that is one of the greatest things about chucker hunting is that you are forced to explore places that not many people have, and you are forced to explore places that you probably wouldn't, save for the fact that you're looking for this elusive red legged devil. And that's one of the things that I always talk about on the podcast that I think is the most amazing thing about doing uh, a chucker hunt or being involved in a chucker hunt or chucker hunting in general is that you get to explore. And I think that that is probably one of the maybe subconscious aspects of chucker hunters. It's that they're curious and that they like to explore and it scratches that itch on top of being able to do something that's tough and do something that's fun and do something that, that really builds a lot of camaraderie as well. But yeah, I mean, and, and, and to put it in perspective, the place that I went 78 miles away from my house is my close spot. That's mm-hmm. like that's close for me um, and not to not to say that there's not Chuckers chucker closer, but, you know, that that's when I say I'm going out for half a day. So like generally how it works is on Fridays, my kids, I drop them off at nine o'clock and I will drive out to that same general area and I will hunt from about I get out there around 10 or so and 10 to about one. And I drive back in in time to pick them up from school at three. And that's so that that generally that area that I go is my quote unquote close spot. So yeah, there's times I've driven three hours, you know, in, in a day, three hours one way, so six hours round trip, uh, just to hunt chuckers in a day, and and that's pretty normal. That's pretty normal for a lot of people. I mean, it's hmm. it's not when I started really getting the chucker hunting and big game hunting, the concept of driving six hours, eight hours is is not a big deal. I mean,
0: if, I've done grass, that for pigeons. <laughs> have you really? Yeah, for bentails.
1: Well, yeah, there's just a sickness involved, you know. Yeah, kind of is.
0: <laughs> so okay, so if I uh, talk to a listener from Maryland or okay. Maine or something, w- tell try to describe for us what is it w- put us there. What does it look like to do to go on a chucker hunt?
1: So really what you're looking at is is you're looking at some of, you know, kind of overgrazed-ish, you know, or just you're looking at the Great Basin, which if you think about tall, rocky peaks, rim rock, which is essentially rock that rims uh, a ridge or the side of a mountain. And you're generally looking at pretty, pretty steep ascents to a lot of these places, but it's open. As far as the eye can see, and that's one of the greatest things about being in Nevada and being in areas where you find chucker, even in other states, is that when you get into chucker country, it's unobstructed. The only obstruction you may have is you might be in the bottom of a draw and you're just looking at the side of another hill. But essentially, you get on top of the peak or you stand out there, and and the vistas are amazing, and you are you have this sense of being utterly alone. And it's really
0: fantastic feeling. And then except for the hateful gray birds that are out there somewhere yelling at you,
1: well, they just demand respect.
0: That's <laughs> all.
1: They just demand respect. And um, and, and really, it, you're going to be walking a lot. I say walking. I, what I mean is hiking a lot. You know, there, we talked earlier about, you know, it's the calorie per, per dollar is you're going to be a poor person if you try and equate it that way. So it it requires a lot of walking it, You're going to be walking up high into sometimes, you know, you know, 6,500, 7,000 feet elevation. I mean, there's areas I'm sure that they're, they're even higher, but you're going to be in higher elevations, a little bit of that thin air and, um, but you're going to be and probably a lot of you're going to see a lot of cheatgrass. You're going to see
0: that's their wow. primary food, by the way, is cheatgrass.
1: Yeah. One of their primary foods, especially in the late season, because, you know, obviously anything more readily available is sort of gone. And it's an interesting concept we can kind of get into. In oh, terms yeah. I, of, have, I, I, I know a
0: fair bit about their food habits. <laughs> into. All right. So you get but, out of your truck. You're in yeah. what looks like a Western. Yes. And and <laughs> how do you know where to go? Like you just kind of start walking or or. Are they such covey birds that you know, like, okay, this, this covey of chuckers is going to be probably within a quarter or a half mile of the spot that I last found them?
1: Well, that's if you've hunted them before. So if we're just talking about an absolute an absolute noob, nobody, no, somebody who's never done it before and they're trying to just figure it out, the easiest thing to do and the easiest way to start or at least give yourself a starting point is you got to find water especially early season. This makes a little bit easier if you're new to it, because if you can find water, everything in life, you, me, birds, ungulates, whatever it is you're talking about, anything that's got life in it requires water. So in Nevada, there's areas where water is very, very common in just freestanding water. But there's also areas where we have to bring in, um, other ways yeah essentially guzzler that's kind of what i was getting to is guzzlers And, and guzzlers are a water catchment it's an artificial water catchment that allows a place for that's generally arid or very arid it provides an opportunity for rainwater to get caught or snow melt to get caught into an artificial uh drinking trough so Small game, big game, and there's others that it's delineated. There's small game guzzlers, there's big game guzzlers, but in areas where, and those are generally kind of marked pretty well, whether it's through the Nevada Department of Wildlife, or um, or through even now Onyx or other sort of uh, other sort of digital map services, you can find these guzzlers. But you gotta find water. So if you think of other areas like uh, like Idaho or Oregon, you know. A lot of the most iconic places are places along long tracks of rivers, or these large, um, large rivers, or streams, or creeks, or whatever. So that's that's the basic thing. That's that's the most common and easiest thing to do is you got to find water, whether that be a river with steep cliffs near it or, or adjacent to it, or you need to find springs. So that those are natural seepages of water that do occur uh, through the water table. So, and those are generally pretty easy to spot. If you just stand and you look at a mountainside, you're going to see areas that are more heavily, veg- have more heavy vegetation. So, uh, sometimes you'll see quaking aspen. Quaking aspen can be a place, especially if you're grouse hunting, that might be an indication of where there might be water. But are really going to find things like rosebush bush or rosebush. You're going to find uh, maybe some cattails. There's places that I hunt where sometimes you can see these long sort of cattailish looking uh, grasses. So those are good indications. Anywhere where it looks maybe greener than somewhere else um, or darker, uh, which looks like it might be a moist area, there there's probably going to be water there, and that might be a pl- good place for you to start looking. It's a little bit harder as the season goes on because free water is not as, not as necessary for birds because depressions in rocks, they can get dew off of grasses, they can get moisture from other areas that Aren't a centralized water source, but it's still a good thought that if even in late season, if you know where there's a consistent water source throughout the year, and I guess that's the key point to consistent water source, you can generally start there and start to branch out. They might not be on top of it like they were early season, but they're probably going to be somewhere in the, a few mile radius of, of that area.
0: They will go several miles away from the water source, eh? They
1: can, yeah, it just depends. I mean, a lot of it. Excuse me. A lot of it depends on pressure. So if if there has been uh, a lot of human pressure in that area in the early season on that water source, then absolutely they could move off. They could move mm-hmm. as far. I mean, they go. So to give you an idea, during breeding season, uh, which is leading up into March now for us, uh, when they start pairing off and they start uh, mating, they all move off one, two miles from where they're you know sort of quote-unquote home range is so and then they'll kind of come back together towards the the early season and that's when you find these sort of mega cubbies but they move off so the for them flying is for them flying and moving is 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 not that big of a deal and i talk a lot especially with my buddy rob jones over in california is that birds don't necessarily get they don't get you don't you don't kill them all they're not that dumb especially chucker they just move Mm -hmm. they're not they're not going to say, well, gosh, every day I'm going to wait for George to get up here and just shoot the heck out of us. No, I mean, I don't need to be next to this water source uh, because I can get my water from grasses now. I can get my water because now there's snowmelt in the rocks. I can drink from that. I don't need to be here anymore. I'm just going to move off. And now I'm not going to get pressured every day. And that's when you start really having to push out. And that's why chucker hunting is tough because, you know, you might get lucky early season and find a lot of birds centralized, especially if it was really, really hot, arid summer you 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 know you might start finding them near water sources. But as the season progresses and the pressure happens and free water is not as necessary for them because they can find it elsewhere, they're going to move off. And they're going to find little crevices, little canyons, little uh, Shangri-Las, as I call them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that's where they're going to hang out.
0: So every time I've hunted truckers, I, I, the first time, they're they're not actually yelling at you. It's after they bust the first time that they start yelling at you. Um, usually, it's that first encounter for me, at least, has been the "Oh my God!" Oh, 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 missed them all, <laughs> and, and then you try, you, you start trying to chase them, and then they start chucking at you. Um, but I know that some other people will say that they, they hear them yelling at you first, and then you try and find them. So, describe a typical shot at a chucker, because you know, I mean, if you think about a typical shot at a typical upland bird it's it's trap. It's you know it's a rising bird directly away from you. Chuckers in my experience are not quite so easy.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> well, that's that's time of year dependent. So mm. because in the early season you're going to get a lot of immature birds, you're going to get new birds essentially that don't have the education like the older birds. So you're going to find sometimes that birds are going to hold a little bit tighter. And so in the to give you an idea, like in the beginning, so I'll, I'll i just got a, a semi automatic very, very late in the season, so but I'm always a two barrel guy. I've been shooting the Frankie instinct. And so I'll I'll shoot in a you know an IC in the top and I'll shoot a uh, modified in the bottom. And that runs me pretty good throughout the most of the season because my shots are kind of in that, well, just above the, you know, just at the bottom of your feet and the, oh my God, oh my crap, I just pooped myself sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, the fear of, you know, the bird flying out from the bottom of the to 30 yards out. So, you know, it kind of gives you that nice intermediate range. Later in the year, it just depends on how pressured the birds have been. If you've gone, if you end up finding yourself in a spot where other hunters have been, then those shots might be 30 yards plus sometimes. And, you know, so, you know, you want to have maybe a full choke. You want to start putting in a full choke in that bottom and move that modified to the top uh, to get that little extra range. Mm. But, you know, your your you you know, about that 30 yard range is probably a pretty good estimate in terms of, you know, where where those birds generally like to flush. And a lot of it has to do, too, with just your how you've approached them how you have, you know, how your dog is handling them. Or even if you're a dogless hunter, and I was for many, many years, it's just about seeing and reading that terrain and and knowing where you should kind of get into to try and give yourself the most advantageous. Because if you come from above them and push them down, especially if you don't have a dog, you're, yeah, you're going to screw the pooch there for lack of a better way of putting it. So you want to try and hunt them from below and try and push them up to get them to fly up. Or maybe even run. But, you you know, once they fly down, sometimes they're really hard to find.
0: That's Especially interesting because, a dog. because uh, traditional roughed grouse hunting, the, the saying is that you hike up and hunt down. Mm. And so this is the opposite.
1: Without a dog. So that that was just kind of in, that was advice on how I would do it without a dog. Now, gotcha. with a dog as well. no. So with a dog, you, if you can get your dog, I always like to hike to the top. And, and that's probably a lot of checker hunters' mentality is you just want to get to the very top. And then you start hunting from the top, and you do start hunting down. But you, one of the tactics that really can be beneficial, if everything works out, is that when the when you're if your dog is coming downhill on point, if you can try and get in a position, so not coming over the top of your dog, but maybe trying to pinch him in between. So trying to hike down a little bit and walk up and try and push them up so they fly up higher rather than just fly super low, maybe just above the sagebrush and, they, and cut down to give you just a little bit better of a shot. That's a good tactic as well. Um, but it really just depends on just how the birds are how your dog's handling the birds and how how the birds are behaving and sometimes you really just don't even have that opportunity because once your dog gets on birds and finds birds you know maybe you've walked for the last four hours and you haven't seen birds so you just want to just get in there and and try and get a bird in the bag Mm -hmm. but I mean everybody has sort of their own little little techniques but that's one of the things I've really been trying to do this year is to try and get not behind my dog and walk forward but below my dog and try and pinch the birds a little bit in between us so we can get them to fly or
0: flush higher up.
1: We'll flush a little bit higher and then try and dictate where they fly. So if you come from behind your dog, they're going to fly low and they're going to usually do a little J-hook, whether it's to the left or to the right. But if you can come perpendicular to your dog or even from below, you can try and at least push the birds in whatever direction that you want to keep them. So if you want to try and keep them a little higher, I mean, that's an ideal world and it doesn't always work because sometimes birds just, you know, you get on birds and you just, you know, and they
0: flush and you just pull the trigger. Um, but one other piece of the, of the flush that's important to note is that. At least in my experience, a Covey does not all flush at once. Most Correct. of it does, but there's almost always a couple of stragglers, just oh, yeah. like mountain quail, and, and many of the western quail will do the same thing. They don't all blast at once like a bobwhite.
1: Yeah, so there's a sentry bird, uh, and how they how they delineate and how they choose who the sentry bird is, and if it's the same bird all the time, or they switch roles. No, so that's the guy who that knows? had to
0: buy the tequila the last night. <laughs> you get He's to like, stand up and dry up. Hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you're on the lookout today. All
0: right.
1: So so there's always a sentry bird that sort of uh, donates its time and, and, and service to the covey and will and we'll keep track and keep an eye out. That's generally the first bird that you're going to see that's going to fly. So whether or not that first rise is with that sentry bird as it flies or that you see that first bird go and then all of a sudden the covey goes. But even at that, there's, I always try... And if I don't get one on the first shot and the birds are already too far away, I always try and hold because there's so many times where there's one or two stragglers that it's like, you know, Jeff is just like off on his own little tan. He's just chewing away at some grass and then all of a sudden, oh, everybody's gone. Oh, I guess I better go. And and by that time, you've closed a little bit more distance and you might have an opportunity to actually, you know, pick up that straggler bird. And, and I think that's why a lot of people like to shoot semi-automatics, um, is because you always have that third shot in there. Uh, but I mean, we can talk about guns all day, but yeah, there's always gonna, there always seems to be this little straggler bird or somewhere, uh, especially if you've broken that cubby up once. They're mm-hmm. they're they're going to land and they're going to try and cubby up by chucking, by calling to each other, and if you give them a little bit of time, they start kind of coming together but they're not going to be tight like they were the first time they're going to be kind of a little bit interspersed so you know if one's behind a rock and it doesn't see the rest of them fly then you still have that one that's an opportunity so yeah it's it's an interest. it's a it's a fun bird it's a really really just a, it's such a challenge and you start learning their little their little quirks and the way that they do things and that kind of is fun because it sort of opens kind of opens or it covers a little bit more of that mystery you know it's not all mm-hmm. it's not as much of a mystery as it used to be.
0: Other, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw gasoline on a fire here. Are there some dogs better than others for chucker hunting? So full disclosure, I do not hunt with a dog. uh um, yeah, But I know that, uh, I know that that there are, you know, dog fights in the <laughs> upper world are just. This is what I, I just, uh, when we're recording this, this is. I don't know if you guys out there follow Instagram, but there is a uh, an account which sadly is closing called the hip uplander oh really yeah and he just whoever does it just posted that they're gonna at least take a hiatus for a while and because
1: of, <laughs> a sad no
0: her. doubt because of dog fights but it's it was oh. one of my favorite it was just pokes fun at all of us in in the upland world and it's really good inside jokes but I, uh you can't take
1: yourself too seriously yeah apparently I'm some right. people
0: were you know
1: well yeah bummer. maybe I, I sure and i've seen that I, i'll tell you man i i've <laughs> I've gotten hate mail, you know, from the podcast, and I'm like, I do this for fun. I do it because I love it, and because I just want to, you know, give everybody something to listen to. And people get mad about stuff, and you're just like, well, you know, that's not down, it, Francis. That's 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 one or two people I have to explain. to am like, hey, I do this for fun. It's a passion project. Right. You know, I'm sorry that you were you know, that I didn't say something correctly. It's just, I, hey, man, you know, just pay my bills. So,
0: so let's uh, talk about.
1: Like, yeah, let's so talk about that. So, what do you dogs. run?
0: What do you, you know, let's talk a little bit less about breed and more about characteristics. What makes a good trucker hunting dog? From the that's only thing amazing. I know is that it's got to be pretty wide ranging.
1: Well, that's that's a pretty fair way of looking at it because I've hunted behind a ton of different dogs and they're all great. Um, I am a I'm definitely a Baskin Robbins kind of guy. I like all the flavors. So I I personally have a German Shorthair Pointer and a German Wirehair Pointer. And one of the things that I will tell you from seeing different bird dogs run and seeing my dogs run and and having hunted without dogs, Chucker, and now hunting with Chucker, a couple of things that really, or there's really three things I think that are the most important and and how you you quantify this is sort of, I think it's up to the handler and up to the owner. But, you know, you really have, you need to have a dog that has a lot of stamina. And that, that's because you're going, you're going all day, you know, there's, there's this idea of, you know, I'll go and do a loop for an hour and come back and, you know, uh, take a rest. I mean, when you go chucker hunting, you're gone for the day for the most part. So anything you need, everything you got is with you. And so that includes anything for your dog. And so your dog has got to be able to keep up and you want your dog to range. Now that is very, very specific to the, to the individual. Some people like dogs that range out to 600 yards, and that's fantastic. And I'm not a dog trainer by any stretch of the imagination, but as long as your dog will handle the birds, however far you want your dog to go is completely up to you. I mean, if your dog's going out 600 yards and just busting every single covey in sight, probably not worth having a 600-yard dog. You probably want to rein them in a little bit. But my dogs, for the most part, are a 100- to 300-yard dog. And I think that that is perfect because they're covering distances, they're covering terrain, they're hitting objectives. Now you don't want to just a uh, you don't want a hundred or three hundred yard dog that just runs around in circles all day. You want a dog that understands, and that's through experience, where birds are generally found. And we didn't really talk about it, but it was a thought that popped into my head. When you're working your dogs, you need to try and give them at least the best shot possible. And that's to get them working into the wind. Uh, Sometimes it's very dead wind out here in the great basin, but sometimes it's, it's ripping pretty good. So you want to try and work your dog into the wind and that gives them the best opportunity. Um, So you need a dog with good stamina. Uh, You need a dog that's savvy. And when I say that, I think that kind of boils down to experience too, because you'll, you'll see it. And I've started to see it in my puppy, you know, in the beginning of the year, she just ran around just, she just ran around like an idiot. And as the year progressed, you really, I started to see her no objectives, no, you know, other, you know, I need to go up here and, and check these rocks out and I need to go up here in this rim rock. I'm going to go down here in this draw. And she's really trying to find the wind and she's really trying to work that wind. And, and then it's, it's a matter of those really savvy bird dogs. They know how to hit scent, stop on that scent cone and then really hold those birds And that's, and not pressure them because those birds, you could sometimes see them. I've actually seen them when my dog's on point in the, in the tall cheatgrass, I could Mm -hmm. see one and I'm like, okay, there they are.
0: That's where you want a 22.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Might be easier. Well, that's where the ground and pound and that's the controversy behind that, but that's a different topic,
0: but I am a, I am an avowed (laughs) skillet shooter, man, especially when it's a bird that's as hard to get as a chucker.
1: Well, it's it's called pre-flight, buddy. It's called pre-flight pre-flight. <laughs> Shoot pre-flight.
0: That's like when you're fly fishing, it's a strike indicator. And when you're fishing for, for something to eat, it's a bobber.
1: <laughs> uh, so however you need to sell it to yourself to sleep at night. But yeah, I, I, I have I have no shame either. But. Uh, really and you need that dog that's not going to pressure those birds and bump those birds so Mm -hmm. they need to understand that stopping on point and holding those birds and trying to do it in a way and and i I, it's hard for me to describe because i'm not i'm not i'm not a trainer and i'm not a bird guy the bird dog guy in that regard you know i just know what i see from my dogs but what i've seen in all the other breeds is that these dogs are just savvy and they know how to hold these birds um and uh and yeah, they just need to have tough feet. That's another part of that stamina aspect. Is that this this country, this rimrock, um, the shale, it's tough, really tough dogs feet. So having a having a dog with tough feet uh, and conditioned feet is is really important as well.
0: Do you give them the little boots?
1: I carry. Uh, I do carry a boot. I bought I have bought boots before and they last about all of two seconds and then they're then they're just donated I call it desert treasure some other hapless hunter is going to walk across and go ah, there's a dog boot I'll take that and for the life of me I try and find them and I never can because they're like 50 bucks you know I don't want to lose one but
0: oh that's what happens they just fall off they don't they don't break but
1: no 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 no. they just fall off I mean you know there's sort of that and and I, I know a lot of people have different different uh, tactics to keep boots on but for me living where I do it's a lot easier for me to condition my dog's feet in the country that they're going to hunt so I have very few dog feet issues other than Hazel my older dog she sustained a pretty good injury early in the season so she wasn't I couldn't exercise her. She really was on just bed rest for about five weeks, which really softened her feet up. So when she got back in the field, it was a matter of, yeah, I'd hunt her for a day and she would just be totally smoked. I couldn't hunt her at all for the rest of the weekend and she would just be done for a week. But my puppy, no foot issues all year long because I just condition them on this stuff.
0: Hmm. So gear's probably pretty, you know, it's the one thing that's different from um, a chucker hunt than say much my other upland hunting is mostly i just wear that filson harness vest you know like the real light one yeah tin strap uh, vest yeah yeah but the difference is when when i'm trucker hunting i might want something a little bit more with more pockets just because you want to stick more you know turkey or whatever food and then and then when you're since i don't hunt with a dog i'm usually carrying water for me and the other dogs because the guy who's got the dog usually (laughs) it's <laughs> like carry as much water as you can because <laughs> we may be gone for four hours or, you know, we're chasing chupacabras at night because we, we got lost. But so there's a bit bit more of a I don't I've never really worn chaps when checker hunting. Yeah. Uh I've just worn really good boots. I like Um. I really like lightweight wool socks. You know, I wear smart wool stuff, but any any good wool sock is better than cotton. Um layers i guess but it's just i think basically you just need to be mobile because you're going to be walking 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 and as far as a gun like i also shoot a franke i shoot a, a franke veloce and it's a, a 20 gauge as well and it's <laughs> the the chokes are fused into it as improved and modified so i'm gonna go with that no matter what because i either you can no longer take my chokes out <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh you know yes Gear is probably the most requested topic on the podcast and I, I would say because when you start getting into chucker hunting and this is really not this is not a uh, an exaggeration or a boast it, it really is similar to the to your backcountry guys that are and gals that are hunting big game it's it's all about the having the good gear and having the right gear because it, it a it keeps you safer, and B, it prolongs your ability to stay out there and hunt comfortably and confidently that at least you know you're going to be safe. So I I love gear as much as the next person. So I love switching stuff out. But I shoot anything from, you know, if we just want to start at guns, I shoot a Franke Instinct and a two-barrel, and I love it. I also have a Breda A400 Explorer that I just bought. Yeah, both in 12 gauge. Uh, I know a lot of people who hunt 20 gauge, I know 16 gauge. Some guys are crazy and they hunt 410. I got a buddy who hunted two barrel 410 this year for the last portion, and that dude's just one of my one of my idols when it comes to chucker hunting. And so, I mean, 12 gauge is probably your most common cali or common gauge size that you probably see people out there. Um, I would say that you could probably get away with a lot of cheaper stuff on top, but really the boots are the most important. Because mm-hmm. the just like your dog's feet and the terrain will tear your dog's feet up. Having really good boots makes a huge difference in terms of your foot fatigue, your ability to side hill. So you really want a good, you want a, you want a stiffish boot, yeah, uh, something that can help you side hill comfortably. So something preferably I for me with a full with a full rand around it, so it helps keep that the side of that boot stable when you're side hilling. Something that's generally got some sort of a you know semi rigid. A Midsole, so that when you step on the rocks, your foot's not folding over it, and that's really gonna that really helps a lot with having a good purchase on the rocks when you're climbing up. And then I like leather boots. Some people like synthetic boots. It really doesn't matter. It's just down mm-hmm. to your personal preference. But I wear an eight and a half I wear an eight and a half inch tall boot. Uh, and I I mean I I wear pretty much a a full on mountaineering style boot, not like your, you know, like your Everest guys and gals, but right. You know, I mean, I, I, wear, I wear a, a full solo mount boot,
0: boot, which is pretty, pretty, pretty similar to what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you a really good boot. If you're going to invest money into any piece of equipment going chucker hunting, that's the great thing about chucker hunting uh, is that all you need is a shotgun and a license. If you got tennis shoes, conceivably you can go do it. You don't. If you have a JanSport backpack and a pair of tennis shoes and a jacket, you could go out and do it. You don't need anything other than a license and a shotgun and some shells. Ooh. So that's the great that's the greatest thing about show. marina
0: that's great, wool underwear. Highly recommended.
1: <laughs> I'm saying conceivably in terms of just starting, you don't really need anything. Uh, but when you start really getting into the wants, the things that you should start investing your money into is, is first of all, in my opinion, is a good pair of boots because you can kill chucker with a with a Remington 870 pump for 300 bucks. Oh, you know, sure. you don't you don't need you know the fancy stuff and and everything was progressional for me as well and for most people most guys still hunt with hand me down guns that they got from their dads so you know that's where i think you should invest your money and then really to be honest with you i laugh and call myself a costco hunter all day and all night because i find the best hunting gear in costco And it's an amalgam of anything you can find from Columbia to Union Bay tech pants to to uh, Eddie Bauer stuff to uh, Under Armour. So, I mean, you get into the synthetic fibers. So, you know, like having a synthetic, having a synthetic pant, something that dries quickly is really important because rain showers can be something that are really can not only ruin your hunt, but can be dangerous as well. Because if you become hypothermic, it's, it's, it's definitely not a situation that is very fun. And I have been there myself, checker hunting, and it's pretty scary. So I went from jeans after that hunt to a technical pant, uh, which were $20 at Costco, they're Union Bay Tech pants, or as I've talked about many, many times before, the Wrangler outdoor pants at Walmart that are twenty bucks as well are fantastic pants. If you're if you're on a budget and you need and you want something better than a pair of jeans, that is not going to break your budget, and those will easily last one to two seasons.
0: Oh yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I my stuff is everything from high end Felsen to Dickies.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do learn as you do it what you like the most. I run so hot. And so I sweat probably more than, uh, more than the average person. At least I feel I do. So I, I do, I wear a, I wear a Merino, uh, 150 weight Merino base layer and it's a base layer t-shirt. And I always wear a t-shirt underneath because you can see at some point I'm going to get hot and I want to take it off. And then I wear a lighter, uh, synthetic, uh, usually it's like a quarter zip that goes over the top. Um, and then I always carry a rain shell in my backpack. That was one of the things I did not have when I got hypothermic that time hunting. And I was way far out of town. Like it was bad and we lost the truck and it was, a, it was an absolute nightmare. And it was really scary because it starts snowing. We were disoriented. We got hypothermic and it was just, it was, it was not a, not a, not a, not a something I want to re, recreate anytime soon. So after that, I it doesn't matter if it's a $5 emergency poncho from, you know, Walmart or whatever, get something in there that will protect you from the rain and keep it in your bag. And so always have a rain shell of some degree. And then, uh, and then really whatever, whatever you prefer. I mean, there's times when it's cold. I'll carry a puffy jacket, um, as well, one that scrunches down pretty tight. But everything is layerable and everything is synthetic or wool. I don't wear any cotton. I don't wear any jeans. I don't wear jeans anymore. Uh, and that's for me. As much as I do this and as much as I've been out there and is the, and the, the sketch situations that I've found myself in over the years, um, I know what I like now and I know what I what I perform the best in. And so as you get into chucker hunting more, that's when you start kind of figuring out what you like. Um in terms of bags, I started off with regular old. I started off with a regular old vest that I bought for like twenty bucks at Cabela's and a backpack, and a Camelback backpack, and that's what I started off. And then I moved into the Tenzing BV series bag, which I ran for a number of years, and it's, it was a great bag. And then this year I I run uh, an Orbis Pro Upland vest, and just because I got a great deal on it, and it's a good it's a good vest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like I like I've kind of moved away from bladders, both in chucker hunting and in backcountry hunting, because I think they do have a propensity. They can't fail. Uh, and then you're you're kind of you know, screwed if you've lost all your water. And I've had issues with my my water uh, hose freezing. And I know that there's remedies to that, but I'd rather not just deal with it. So now I just carry three liters of water, two smart water bottles. Um, and I want a pack that's got it's water bottle compatible, so I've got places to put my water bottles. Because I also carry a Sawyer mini filter with me that screws it just screws it directly onto the top of a smart water bottle. So I've got three liters of water, and then I've got a water filter I carry with me. And like I said, with all that stuff that I'm carrying, first aid kit, uh, possibles I carry first aid slash possibles kit. I carry a uh, I carry a full um, key handled. Uh, tourniquet for any traumatic bleeding. I carry things like that. I carry um, gloves, beanie. D- doesn't matter the time of year. I always carry gloves, beanie, neck gaiter, uh, or baseball cap, and you know, then all the other bells and whistles and jewelry like the, you know, like my my GPS unit and all that stuff that I have.
0: Man, so, you travel heavy. It's really. I'm not always that wearing heavy. like a pair of, pair of pants and a blaze orange vest and a pocket full of shells.
1: Yeah, it's not really that heavy. I, it sounds like a lot of stuff, but when you when he when it really breaks it down, it's actually my stuff is very refined, and I've mm-hmm. done it over, and I've it's it's been a progression. But all my stuff is very refined. It's you know it's literally in like a little my possible's kit is all in a six by six little uh, pouch that fits right into the back sleeve of my of my Pro Upland vest. And then all that stuff really just goes inside that and zips off. I carry nothing apart from my rain jacket, layers the bottom of my bird bag, the the bird bag portion. All my food goes in the the little front zipper. It's like a little Velcro portion. All my food goes in there. So, you know, I carry, I love eating. And this is Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I love having kids. But I love eating these little uh, smuckers, peanut butter and jelly and crustables. I carry, I put two of those in my bag and then all the other goodies. And so my food goes in there. And then I've got my shells on my left, and I carry my uh, cell phone, and my gloves, and my beanie, and my gator in my right side of my pouch. So, yeah, it's just everything's—it's really not. It's actually really not that heavy.
0: Hmm. Probably shells-wise, uh, if I'm shooting steel, I'm usually shooting steel sevens, and if I'm shooting lead, I'm shooting lead sixes.
1: Yeah, so uh, in t- so we don't have to by law use le- uh, use steel in Nevada. So I shoot uh, two and three quarter inch sixes. Uh, sometimes I'll dabble in the fives, just depends on what the birds are doing. But for the most part, I shoot the golden pheasant, uh, Fiocchi golden pheasant, two and three quarters in, in in six shot. Those are at least what I've seen. They're they're great for birds. They seem to they seem to have they hold their pattern pretty well. Although I haven't actually officially patterned them, they seem to have not as many gaps out of the gun that I was shooting in. And then when I go to, so if when I, and I do go and hunt chucker in California because I live so close to the border. I, I hold a California license as well. I do like to go over and hunt Mount quail and chucker in California. So when I go there, if I'm hunting chucker, I probably will scale it down a little bit to maybe a four or a five on that steel shot, but Hmm. I don't,
0: but I've never had a problem putting them on the ground with Winchester steel sevens.
1: Well, some people are way better shots than me, so, <laughs> <laughs> so know. I'm
0: going with the spray and pray method.
1: <laughs> you know that's that's what I've used and that's what I use, um, and then you know obviously you know steel sevens or bismuth for mountain quail. So,
0: so let's talk about finally after how yeah. we've been going, we're going a long time and I'm, and I'm okay with that. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about once you get I some birds in the uh, Yeah. How do you like to cook your chuckers?
1: So I think, you know, obviously I'm talking to the guru, so I don't want to be shamed too much, but for me, it's all about introducing wild game to my family. And that's one of been one of the greatest things is that for the most part we don't buy store bought red meat, and we do supplement our white meat with chicken, but the chucker is when I cook chucker, what I usually do is I make a few dishes. I will make enchiladas, I will make tacos, I will make I will make uh, meat sauce, spaghetti meat sauce, um, and I will make chili. And my family all loves it; they'll eat the crap out of it. And that for me is probably one of the most rewarding things is that they, they know exactly what they're eating. They know it's not, I'm not trying to fool them and they can stick and they know exactly what it is. My kids help me clean these birds. So they're very familiar with the process of preparing your own food and they love it. And it's something that's hilarious when they bring their friends over and their friends have no idea what the heck a chucker is. And then they go, oh my gosh, this is great. But we, those are the dishes we do. And generally like what you're I'll- Sounds a skinner. I am a skinner. Yeah, I don't ah. pluck. I don't pluck. And, you know, like I said, I'm talking to the guru, but for me, I I skin them all and I throw the legs and I throw the breast in a crock pot and I boil it down so I can tear I can get every single piece of meat off those bones. I don't want to waste the meat. So I pull all that meat off the bones and then it's a matter of whether or not I keep it shredded or I dice it or, you know, whatever the case is. But that's what I do. And that's how I get the most out of each bird is by doing it that way. There's been times when I, you know, you'll, I take the breast meat and I'll make chicken nuggets or whatever out of it, you know. And mm-hmm. But that's not for me. When I take the breast meat off, I just feel like I could get so much more if I just if I just stick it in the crock pot and just pull oh, every sure. single piece off. So that's that's what that's what I generally do with all the meat that i ended up that i end up getting for chucker is i cook them that way because my family eats it and it's just part of our lifestyle
0: so i will tell you what i tell everybody who's a skinner um (laughs) consider plucking your your well shot birds you know the ones that are not blown to pieces which is most i mean i I, it's been a it's a rare day that i absolutely massacre a chucker. um and the, the trick is to keep them holing in the feathers for three days in the fridge or in some similarly cold environment. Because at that point, they relax enough where plucking them is, is, not, is not a problem. It's, it, it was funny. I actually did a demo and cooking demo and plucking demo in Nevada, actually, uh, in conjunction with NDOW. And somebody brought me chuckers that had been killed the night before, like the night before, and it was the next morning. I'm like, oh, great! Um, which is the singular, singular worst time to try and pluck a pluck any upland bird because it's in full rigor. The feathers stick like iron, and I mean, I can do it because of you know something of a plucking Jedi, but <laughs> but it was not easy, and it was a good object lesson to 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 show people like this is this is how hard it is when you do it at the wrong time. And conversely, I went trucker hunting in Idaho once and got a couple, two, three birds. And, but I was on the road, right? So I kept them in the in you know in a cooler in the back of the truck for like five days. I mean they were whole. I mean they were cold, but they were they were fully whole. Those things pluck like a dream. They almost pluck like a dove. They were so easy. And the reason you go for that is because they're effectively a micro chicken. Um, if you're if you've never eaten a chucker and you're living in your in you're out there listening and wondering, it's a micro chicken. It's it's not. That dissimilar from a Cornish game hen. It'll be denser. It will be slightly less fatty. Um, the sinews in the drumsticks will be firmer, but not unmanageable like a wild turkey. And but it's a white meat bird. It's it's a gallinaceous chicken cousin that is even the dark meat isn't terribly dark. They're they're burst birds. They're not they're not like long distance flyers. And any long distance flyer gets red meat. So the other thing about all chicken relatives is the skin is amazing it just really is amazing like even if you don't keep it on the bird this one of the singular greatest things that you can possibly eat is crispy fried chicken like bird skin and served in any way you like even from right out of the frying pan to in a tortilla or or on rice or it's just it's so amazingly good that i just i can't it's to me it's by far my favorite part of, of eating any white meat bird is the skin and so i go through hell and high water to get to it especially because i mean like i've never shot a limit of chuckers ever and i've never shot more than four in a day so every bird is a trophy and so i'm going to treat it as such and 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 also i don't really live in chucker country so for me chucker's not what I do on a Tuesday, you know. I mean, chucker would be like it would be this is why yeah. we didn't get together this year is because it's it's it takes some effort for me to get into chucker hunting or yeah. chucker country. So, but the the sh- long and short of cooking chuckers is they're bigger than a quail, smaller than a pheasant. They're um if they were picked and plucked, gutted and and ready to rock like a small chicken, you could get away with one per person. If you had other things on the plate, um, two per person's a bit much. So it's almost like you want three birds for two people. And, but they're, you know, they are such a special bird that it's, uh, it's one of those things where like if, if, if you meet a chucker hunter and a chucker, chucker hunter gives you two birds to eat on a sitting, that chucker hunter really likes you.
1: <laughs> I think anybody who gives you any game meat must really like you to do that because the sweat equity that went into gathering that and processing it and getting it back to a point where they could actually gift it to you <laughs> that's a lot of work that's a uh, lot of especially
0: work. especially upland you know the only time i see people trying to offload upland is are people who are hunting um pen pheasants I and mean, they've shot like nine pheasants or something like that
1: well maybe one year i'll get a pheasant i've been trying it for two years Still go to klamath no, I'll, uh, I'm sure it'll happen next year. I just like yeah. to joke about it because it's hilarious because I, I, I hunt a bird that which most people have on a bucket list. I hunt it two to, you know, at least twice a week, if not more during the season. And, you know, I laugh cause I'm like, I do this hunt, which is bucket list hunts for people and people, you know, are shooting the heck out of pheasants and they'll, you know, the concept for them is like, what you can't, oh. you can't shoot a pheasant. Well, I've only tried twice in two years, so it's not exactly something that I'm I'm going on on a regular basis to do, but I still think it's hilarious.
0: It is. It is. I would direct you, though, to next season to go to the Klamath Wildlife Area up uh, on the border of Oregon and, and Nevada. That's probably the best area in, closest to you that has good wild pheasants
1: you're probably a lot like me where your year, year is gets swallowed up pretty quickly through all mm-hmm. the obligations that you have. And so I have to get better about putting stuff on calendars yes. because the spontaneity sometimes is very, very difficult once the season's already going. So I got to get it and say, bam, I'm going and doing this for X number of days and, then I have to. I gotta front load the boss. If I don't front load the boss and she doesn't know what's going on, it's hard to kind of squeeze those those multi day trips in just on the spur of the moment. She gets it, but yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta make sure the boss is all right
0: with it. <laughs> very true, very true. So uh, before I let you go, mm-hmm. uh, you should let everybody out there know how to find you via the web, your website, and podcast, and social media, and all that kind of jazz, so that if people want to follow you more. Uh, online and to listen to the UpChucker podcast, how would they do that?
1: Well, I'm really easy to find, and especially because UpChucker is such a unique word. So if, you've, if you're if you on Instagram, you can find me. It's simply at UpChucker. If you're on Facebook, I'm at UpChuckerNV, and uh, the podcast, which is UpChucker Podcast, is available on, on most every single major platform, but most times people will listen to it. Through iTunes, so you can find me on iTunes, and then you can always visit the blog slash website at upchucker.com. That's going to post all of the recent episodes as well as other content. That's where that's my my guilty place where I put all my writings that maybe nobody wants to read anyways, but it's my spot and I can just put them there. So I put my I do some blogs in there, uh, some, you know, some, some photograph I don't call it photography and some of the photographs I take throughout the year. Uh, and you can see actually see our the Himalayan snowcock hunt we did in in, in, in partnership with Project Upland uh, two years ago. That, that's actually It's a great 100%. film. It's a, it was a lot of fun. It's uh, it's uh, I know that's not the, the topic of this podcast, but a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I think I actually linked to that video for the Snowcock podcast that that we did some some months ago. So that's it's uh, all of this stuff is going to be in the show notes too, by the way, for for those of you listening. And so that if you if you forgot if you got if you forgot to write it down, just a second, uh, I will have it in writing on the podcast show notes. So anyway, Travis, uh, I'm absolutely going to use that calendar skill that we just mentioned to put some dates on for us to uh to meet in in nevada or or even in in eastern california at some point next season to chase the hateful gray bird
1: (laughs) that'd be great yeah that would be fun i just want to say thank you i like i said this is only the second time in two years i've been on somebody else's podcast normally i'm the guy reaching out so it's actually really fun it's been it's really been fun to be the guest and i just thank you for that opportunity you could have chosen anybody and i appreciate you choosing me
0: I want to thank everybody for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. This has been a great episode, and I hope you stick with me for the rest of Season 2. You can find me online at Hunt, Gather, Cook on Instagram, as well as my website, which is Hunter Angler gardener, Cook. That would be HuntGatherCook.com. And if you go there, you will find our podcast page with all of the other episodes of this season and the previous season of the podcast. And I have a request for you. One of the reasons I've kept sponsorship of this podcast to a minimum is to try to stay as independent as possible. It's incredibly important for me to be an honest broker, to only support things that I actually really use, and that will be valuable to you as a listener. To keep that independence, I do need to keep the lights on and the mortgage paid. So on the podcast page of Hunter, Angler, Gardner, Cook, you will see a button to support this podcast. If you do, at certain levels, you will get anything from a hunter-angler-gardener-cook bumper sticker to signed books. At certain levels of support, I am offering signed copies of Buck Buck Moose, my venison cookbook, or Pheasant Quail Cottontail, which is the book that accompanies this podcast, because it is dedicated to all things upland and small game. If you donate at a higher level, you'll get both books, and I will sign them both as well. I really appreciate your support. Without you guys, all of this is meaningless, and... I really, really appreciate your reviews, your ratings, your comments, your feedback. All of that makes what I do much, much more valuable because I learn from you as much as you learn from me. So stay tuned until next time. I'm Hank Shaw, and until then, keep it wild.